I'm absolutely delighted to welcome the one and only Grant Williams to the HJ chat room. Grant, how are you, sir? And welcome to the chat room. I'm doing great. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. Um, I'm going to do my best to give you a full introduction, but I'm sure that there's going to be some parts that I've missed in terms of your career. Um, and for some of our viewers who do not know Grant, or may have only heard about Grant a little bit, I'm going to try and do my level best, as I say, to give Grant a good introduction here. So Grant, I, I hopefully I'm not going to sort of embarrass you, but a 35 year plus veteran of finance, working yeah. across the globe, um, a strategic advisor to Volpus Investment Management in Singapore, and a senior advisor to Matterhorn Investment uh, Management in Switzerland. Uh, Grant is a global macro commentator. Um, Grant also is a content producer. Uh, for those of you that may follow Grant, you're very familiar with Grant's monthly letter. I hopefully it's monthly letter in terms of things that go mm, or make you go mm. And there's varying sort of YouTube podcasts and things like that that Grant's gone on. And uh, Grant is a lifelong football supporter of Fulham. And with yes, that, I'm sure that uh, Grant's going to be very happy. Now, is there anything in that introduction, Grant, that I may have missed? Uh, only the lack of ability to convey the pain of being a lifelong Fulham supporter. Otherwise, it was, it was note perfect. Thank you. Well, I'm also going to tell you that if you're feeling pain following Fulham, you can have a little bit of sympathy because I'm one of very few Leighton Orient supporters. Do you know what? As, as soon as you said that, I thought, don't tell me you're an Orient fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember I remember going to um I remember going to uh to Orient with my dad years and years and years ago. It's so funny. I, I, literally a freezing cold midweek night. We went to Orient uh and I think we got turned over. I think we got beaten by Orient at some point. And it was I just you know, I just, well, that must I just have been a very long miserable time. night. <laughs> a miserable night and miserable weather of being cold so maybe i'm conflating that because it's hard to conceive of anyone getting beaten by orient these days but i'm pretty sure well, it happened it's it's very very true so look i i think that we've had uh there's lots of lots of people talking about sort of like this uh inverted yield curves and how you got things going that way and certainly when it goes to uh football clubs fulham and Leighton orient a very much different <laughs> side right. to the spectrum there <laughs> I was, um, what was quite interesting as well, and again, I'm going to try and keep that smile on your face going for just a little bit longer before we have to go into the macro stuff. Um, and I hope you don't mind, but uh, I was very fascinated when you was, I was listening to other podcasts and you was talking about your sort of career in the city and where you started. And you and I actually have a company in common from pretty much where we both started. Uh, so I also started at Robert Fleming. Ah, excellent. Yes, Hello, Alame. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful place that was. I have to yeah. say, I, I miss it dearly. So I can't remember which floor that we were on on Cotthill Avenue, but you was with the Warren and the Eurobond guys. Yeah, three. Um, we were on the third floor. I was with the market making guys because Robert Fleming had just opened up their UK market making. And That's I think right. I had an agency and a and so I was on that side there. And uh, as I say, I had this sort of like smile and amusement saying, you know what, apart from sort of feeling the pain between Fulham and Leighton Orient, we do also have a shared commonality in terms of Robert Fleming as well. 
Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a great firm. I mean, you know, when when I joined, what's your when you joined? I joined beginning or sort of middle of '85, and um, I think there were, you know, there were no more than six or seven hundred employees worldwide at that point. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it, it was a fantastic firm. I, I loved working there. I, I, I'm still dear friends with a whole bunch of people that I met there and worked with over the years. And, um, you know, I, it, I'd love to go back to a time where firms were like Robert Fleming and not like these enormous great behemoths that you end up working with today when you're on that, that, that part of the business. Oh, I know. And, and you had the characters there as well, Grant. You know, I mean, we work for these companies, but ultimately we work for these characters. And, you know, these characters were, again, as a young guy going through the city, I started at Fleming's, I think it must have been about 1988, around that time. Okay, so was um, Vic Marks still there? Was Vic Marks still there? So we had the guy that was running market making at that time, you had Barry Marks. So you had Barry and on the Eurobond side, I believe it was what, Cliff Bensford and those yeah, guys. Cliff, so Cliff gave me my first job. It was Cliff and really? John Galvanoni. And yeah, you know, Galvo right. was, a, was an absolute legend in, in, in the city, you know, and, and just a wild guy to have in the room as a young man, just watching this complete oh, yeah. force of nature. I mean, he was a remarkable guy. Um, you know, uh, equal parts pain and profit, but um, <laughs> uh, profit with a PHET at the end. But um, it was it was amazing to see, you know, what the what the power of a human could do to a market. You know, he yeah. he would push that thing around to his will. It was incredible. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, as I say, that you had these uh, wonderful characters, and unfortunately, you know, you could argue that uh, these wonderful characters. Are no longer there in investment banks or they've been reshaped and reformed into into different individuals but it's quite interesting because you know you've obviously made the break out of asia and i'm talking to you in cayman islands at the moment um i've still stayed in asia so i've still been here for what over 30 years now and uh you know this is my second time back in tokyo and I'd love to hear, obviously, that you've been a commentator in Japan in many different fronts, whether it's macro and markets and different things. And from your experience for when you first came to Japan, I don't want to say to where we are now, but, you know, the one thing that continues to amaze me, Grant, about Japan, especially Tokyo, the big city here, it just changes. It's forever changing. You know, and I walk around and I think, actually, you know, there shouldn't be any more capacity for any new buildings being built and things. Yeah. Guess what? There's another new building that goes up and another new building. So I'd love to get to here. I don't know whether this is a segue into this or not, but, uh, you know, probably from your first arrival in Japan, what was it like for you at that time? I mean, what were the memories that you had at that time? And, you know, how have you sort of seen that transition period go on throughout the course of the years? Well, you know, it's funny, um, my, my most vivid memory of my first, the first time I set foot in Japan um, would have been 1986, you know, in, in the middle of that boom. And, um, you know, I remember, I remember getting, uh, getting the, the bus from the airport into town. Mm. And uh, the, 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 the interesting thing was, I remember seeing all the signs for all the companies, you know, on the buildings and you know, that, that drive 
Long Lake Nature Expressway is, is littered with buildings and industrial buildings. And, you know, seeing, seeing these companies as real companies, as opposed to names on a pad, which until that point, without having been to Tokyo, it, it brought the whole thing alive to me. You know, it's one thing to, to understand what, you know, Showa Denko do and, and Mitsubishi Cam and Toshiba and all these things, mm. but actually seeing them as, as, as companies, um, that, that was my first memory. And then my next memory was getting to the Imperial Hotel and, and being kind of upside down with jet lag and not wanting to have a beer or anything. And I went up to the, the uh, bar on the top floor of the Imperial Hotel and <clears throat> I ordered like a sandwich and a glass of orange juice or something. And, uh, and then the bill came. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was to me in 1986. I was like, gee, I mean, I think the orange juice was about nine pounds. Wow. In 1986 that's the number that sticks in my head it's, it's almost impossible to believe today but that's that's kind of the number that i remember thinking wow this is this is something else mm. um but that you know that first trip to tokyo was uh was just i mean amazing for me I, I was a young man and you know i'd been to europe on holidays with the family but not many and a couple of times with my mates and but to go to tokyo you know back then um when you had to fly through Anchorage, Alaska, and um, you know the, the, the number of direct flights to Tokyo was lim very limited, it was uh, it was a real feeling of being a fish out of water um, yeah, yeah. In, a, in a very very foreign country. But I I loved every second I was there. I loved the the noise and the lights and the how busy it was and um, you know the culture. It was just it was just fantastic. And and you know to this day. I have, I have an incredible soft spot for Japan. I, I, I just love the place. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned about your flight to Japan going through Anchorage. And as you can probably appreciate that, uh, given the situation that's going on in Ukraine at the moment, Japan Airlines is actually going through Alaska. Oh, they're well. back, they're yeah. back in there. Okay, right. Yeah, they're Full sort circle. of going back there. We had my son, uh, he actually had a trip to the UK a couple of weeks ago and came back that journey there as well. But it's a, you know, it's, it's an interesting scenario, like in terms of that 1987, that kind of era in Japan, you know, to where we are now, I would say that really from a, from a, from a macro perspective, look, you, you've been talking to a lot of, uh, you know, fabulous sort of global commentators about, you know, their different opinions and things like that. And to be honest with you, it's, it's quite interesting because Japan up until recently, has been somewhat the forgotten child within the macro Absolutely. world, right? You know, and everybody's been talking about Europe, talking about UK, US, and da 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 da. And it's only been, I would say, what since the past one month, when Mr. Kuroda came out and said that he was going to defend the yield cap of twenty-five basis points on the ten-year JGB, that we started to get a little bit more focus. Mm -hmm. And not sort of going off into a tangent or a ramble, but the idea behind the chat room, what I have at the moment, is really to start to kind of bring a lot more awareness about Japan, not only for the community that's based in Japan who has a feeling towards Japan, but equally to try and, you know, bring Japan more out to the outside world as well. And uh, I feel that what we've got going on at the moment, and it's quite interesting, Grant, that the market tried to, to touch that 130 handle today in dollar yen. It did try mm -hmm. and never made it, but it's pushing it. And uh, yeah. 
I'd love to get your views because, again, on the one hand, that you've got Kuroda defending the 10-year JGB yield cap, but he can't have everything, right? So he can't sort of have a controlled uh, FX market if he's still trying to put a cap and control the cap on the JGBs. So we're in this sort of uncharted territory at the moment. You know, where do we go with this? You know, we tried, we went through 125, we sort of touched 125, came off and then went through it at 130. Where do we go with this? I mean, I'd love to get your opinion. Well, you know, it is really interesting. And the point you make, I think, is the important one, that Japan has been somewhat forgotten um, hmm. for the longest time because, uh, and this is going to come back to bite Kuroda-san, because he did have control of everything, you know, for the longest time. They, they've had this cap on the on the 10-year yield for some time now. They moved it from uh, 25 beeps to 50 beeps at one point and back to 25 beeps. And they've, they've kind of been doing this and they've, they've cornered the, the JGB market to the point where, you know, you know, better than I do. There are days when the ten-year JGB hasn't traded, you know, which is which is crazy. But that's what happens when you corner the market. And, and I think one of the part of the reason it's been forgotten is because of that. You know, the, the economy has been to the outside world at least fairly moribund. You know, I think the point mm. you made about how the building exchange is is an, again an important one. You know, I I had a a ten-year gap between visits to Japan, and I, and I went back there about I guess seven years ago, six years ago, um, and I. I kind of arrive in Marinucci and am quickly lost, you know, in a place I lived for almost four years yeah. because every building had been torn down and rebuilt. And you, you have this image on from the outside of Japan as being this completely stagnant economy with nothing going on. And, um, and that's clearly not the case on the ground, hmm. but to the outside world, that's what it's been. It hasn't really felt like there was any way to make money there. It hasn't really felt like there was any way, any need to focus on it unless that was your specific mandate. Yeah. So it has been lost to a lot of the macro guys, but now that's changing very, very quickly. Um, and I think it's indicative that markets are very patient, right? And they buy their time. And, and so Kuroda-san has been able to bend a curve to his will for quite mm. some time now and i think frankly they've gotten a bit cocky with this i think mm. they've figured that they've got this under control and no matter what we want we can have and when we say it's going to trade here it's going to trade there but the market's just they won't test you until they think there's a sign of weakness and that's what we've seen as this yen has tumbled in this last couple of months it's woken a lot of people up a lot of big macro traders up mm. and uh and what we're seeing now, to your point, is exactly right. You can't have it all. The market can give it all to you, which it has done for the longest time. It's given you your 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 stable yield curve. It's given you your relatively mm. strong currency. But you can't have all that. It has to be given to you. And now there are enough people circling saying, you know what, if this yen does go through 130, and you've seen that in commentary from, um, from officials at the BOJ, that they would be, quote, unquote, worried if it went through 130, as they should be, Hmm. And we're kind of there now. And, and now the markets smell a bit of blood in the water. And, and it's bringing people back to life who, who, who can move these things around and who, who see a chance to make some money finally. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think this, this experiment um, that the Japanese have been conducting for some time now, like everybody else, has been predicated upon this, this complete inability to generate any inflation. Yeah. And they've continued to try and do that. And you look at what's happened in the West, right? I mean, mm. it, it's impossible to conceive of an 8% CPI print in Japan, but it was impossible to print uh, to conceive of that in America a matter of months ago. 
right. it, it's unfathomable to have 25% PPI uh, increases right across Europe. Again, unfathomable uh, a matter of months ago. And so Japan feels like having led the world in monetary policy, or certainly, um, you know, um, uh, the, the kind of bizarre monetary policy that the world's kind of followed along, it's been lagging in terms of the inflation story. Hmm. But um, it, it, it feels like this is a rubber meets the road time for Japan. And that's only going to get more people looking at it. And that may not really be what Kuroda Sam wants. I think he would like fewer people looking at Japan right now because when they do look, they're going to see vulnerability. Yeah, no, very, very true, actually. Very, very true. And as I say, sort of just going back to dollar yen in terms of, you know, that sort of 125 figure that we were testing went through 125, the 130. I must admit, I'm looking at sterling yen, which is obviously a little bit more of a minor currency. Um, but it's interesting in terms of where that where the market is going to push it. So the narrative coming out of Kuroda is that, yes, he's going to be worried. But it's quite difficult to understand what are they going to do about it, right? You know, if they've come out and simply yeah. said about the defence of the 10-year JGB 25 base. And I was having a look earlier, Grant. I think, you know, I mean, when we start talking in terms of budget numbers for, in yen at least anyway, in terms of dollars, you know, you've just got this numerals of like different zeros going on, you know. Yeah. So when you start talking about, well, it's a 106 trillion yen, it's kind of like, well, you know, what's that in dollars? That in real you, know, yeah, what, you, exactly. know, yeah. you know, my calculator's not sort of wide enough to kind of to bring that up. But, um, you know, I think when I've looked at the budget numbers, I mean, 22% of the budget right now in its current level is servicing the debt. It's, it's a great point. Um, and, and look, and we've, we've known Japan is in this situation for some time now, and, and the market just hasn't tested them. You know, and it's been... I think it's been kind of strange to a lot of people. We've all wondered um, why. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, it, we've had this really strange situation for a long time now where Japan, whilst for a long time being the second biggest economy in the world, was kind of orphan, you know, because of the, mm. of, of the structure of the ownership of the JDB market. The bond market in Japan really wasn't something that could be tested by overseas investors. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I interviewed Russell Clark of Horseman Capital, um, mm. or he was then a Horseman Capital. And, you know, he told me the story of when he tried to buy JGBs um, and how, how difficult and how complicated it was just to buy JGBs and all the hoops he had to jump through, mm. which gave me a new understanding of another reason why they're not so widely owned. So it was never really going to be, I think, the sovereign bond market where Japan was going to be tested. It was always going to be the currency. Mm. And mm. and because there's been no life in the currency for some time, or or the you know the the, the the tests it's been making have been higher tests. We haven't seen it making any lower tests for a while. I think people have just stayed away. But now that they're seeing what they're seeing, with that weakness in the currency, particularly given um, you know the import export situation in Japan, particularly seeing the price of energy imports, there's a real sense that that the yen could come under some pressure here. And so it, it gives people that lever to now say, okay, there are trades to put on in Japan here. They're going to center around the currency, not the bond market. And, you know, the, the, the Japanese government are going to have to decide, do we intervene in the yen, I suspect, um, mm. which look, they're not against doing. They've done it many times in my career. 
But I think this time, and I hate saying these words, could be different simply because there will be an awful lot of money on the sidelines that will that will want to take that bet against Japan. And something somewhere yeah. Yeah. is likely to break. And do you feel, I mean, again, that when we sort of look at, uh, you know, the asset part of the balance sheet for Japan, you know, they are, I still believe that they are, they're probably the largest creditor nation globally. Yeah. Right? So they're still there. And probably with the yen depreciating, it's probably widened that gap between first and second there. And I guess that they're also the largest foreign holder of UST bills as well, right? So they are again now. Yeah, they've just overtaken China again. That's right. And I kind of wonder as well that, you know, those are the other factors that go into this. So if, for example, that they were not the largest creditor nation, and again, apologies, I'm being somewhat repetitive, but if they're not the largest creditor nation, and the fact that they're not a owner of, you know, what's it like a trillion, whatever it is in terms of uh, UST bills, then I think we could have a situation here. But the fact that they've got these assets overseas, that in itself sort of still, I don't know. I mean, to me that that's still something like a little ace what they've got in their card pack, which potentially they could play. I mean, I again, Grant, I don't know if you well, got they, view on they, that. Yeah, they could, absolutely right. But what's been interesting, and I think this is one of the reasons why um, people have woken up this time around, is that historically, when we've seen periods of stress, the yen has been repatriated. You know, people who have sold assets and come back to Japan yeah. um, noticeably at just about every stress point. And that was really, I think, one of the major underpinnings of it being such a, a favorite carry currency because you mm. kind of knew how the Japanese investors were going to react should, should things start to go askew. And that hasn't happened this time for, for whatever reasons, as we've seen this inflation scare in Europe, as we've seen the Ukraine thing play out we just didn't see it yeah and so you're, you're right um but i think with the yen weakening so dramatically i think a lot of that money is going to want to stay in in other currencies it is going to want to stay overseas and mm. so selling those assets to repatriate the money into a dramatically declining currency in a country where domestic inflation potentially could for the first time raise its head and i think at this point if, if you believe that to be the case in japan and, and it's definitely yet to be proven but you are going to be looking at the us and you're going to be looking at how fast it went from zero to eight yeah. and you're going to be looking at europe from zero to seven and a half um and, and a struggling zero and you're also mm. going to be looking at the assurances made by central bankers in in western democracies about how transitory this all was and how quickly they've had to part that um and so, you know, I just get a sense that that while it's not a solid green light to, to, to make those bets in Japan, for the first time in a couple of decades now, perhaps you're, 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 you're being given, you know, kind of an amber light, or if you're a Formula One fan, maybe a few green lights, but they're not all filled in yet. I don't know. But, yeah. but this time feels as though the reaction function is different. And that mm. is, I suspect, what's got people looking at the country more closely now and again there's there's sort of one other observation you mentioned earlier you know factual wise obviously the japanese debt let's just say 99.9 percent .9 of that japanese debt if it's not owned by the bank of japan it's owned by the japanese corporations here um 
I'm not going to put you on the spot, but let's just say observation-wise, you've spoken historically, sorry, historically, you know, you've spoken previously on different sort of shows, et cetera, about the concept of this sort of uh, debt jubilee taking shape. Do you feel that that may happen in Japan, given the fact that, you know, you've got this circulation of debt that's maintained here in Japan, that that could be their way out, so to speak? Look, it, you know, it's, it's such a great question. And I, you know, I've got a podcast that I do with Bill Fleckenstein called mm. The Endgame. And we, we've been trying to answer this question for, for a couple of years now. And we've asked an awful lot of people, um, what is the endgame? Because we've always felt that the endgame would perhaps come in Japan first. Um, we, we figured that inflation would play a significant part. Mm. Um, and we just couldn't figure out what the ultimate endgame would be. And, and you know, I, I think we've we've come to realize that you know there isn't an end game per se the game doesn't end but there's an end game for this period of monetary yeah, history cycle. yeah yeah and, and and japan and their central bank likely plays a big part in that now the debt jubilee idea um you know is 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 a potential but you know I, we haven't really been able to figure out what happens if they did do that you know trade all the debt for a you know a, a zero coupon perpetual just write the, the ticket between each other, them off and the Bank of Japan, and then shake hands and walk away. Um, it's not been done in modern times. So we don't really understand what would happen. The only kind of um, clue we've had from several people is that the, the effects will likely be seen in the currency. And one, one can imagine a situation where the currency gets much stronger because the debt's gone away. And one can imagine a situation where the currency gets much weaker because of the sleight of hand that they've pulled. Yeah. So it's really difficult to see. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I, would, I would think that with people paying more attention to the currency now, uh, the bets are likely to be that it will continue to weaken because that's the stress point for the Bank of Japan right now. It's a weaker yeah. currency. And the markets have a very strong track record of sensing weakness and applying pressure to it and that's kind of where i think we are but but the debt jubilee idea um it's out there and it's a it, it's a it's a clear and present danger to every trade you might put on mm. but i i suspect if they do that it won't be just a very smooth oh okay fine we can start again i, I just i just i can't see how that happens even though i can't uh, conceptualize exactly the dominoes that topple after they do that yet it's very interesting. Again, that uh, just looking at some of the, the other sort of factors at the moment, you know, I'm looking, and again, it's not too surprising because the gold price in the end terms is naturally moving that much more higher. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think for the ounce, we've reached something like 250,000 yen per ounce, which again is, if it's not at the all time high, it's pretty much there as well. And I was also looking as well versus the Chinese renminbi versus the Japanese yen, because we have moved up a little bit more. I think we've reached up to that 2020 figure now, but that 19 figure had only been repeated back in when 2014. Yeah. And that's when you had the, whether it's a devaluation of the renminbi that happened at that time, you know, because China needed to have a competitive advantage with it being where it is at the moment, you know, in a weaker yen, that can equally play in Japan's hand just in regards to, again, making, well, to some degree, in terms of 
making not only their their assets more attractive for foreigners to come in and do M&A trades and to buy Japan ink as well, but I guess at the production line as well there, Grant. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely right, Brian. You know, I, I think that's um, demonstrably the case. But um, again, you know, people tend to focus on dollar yen um, uh, as they do dollar euro, as they do dollar sterling. Everything's against the dollar. But you're right. When you start looking around at these other crosses, you see how broad a decline this is in the yen against um, against just about everybody. And look, there are there are tipping points in that in that yuan yen relationship for sure. Um, you know, the last thing China wants is Japan becoming a cheap place to do business for people. I mean, right. that would be a disaster for them. Um, because the, you know, the world has seen what, what happens when Japan's a cheap place to do business, it, the place thrives. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there, there, are, there are so many cross currents right now. And look, this, this, was, this was really inevitable. Once we had the big central banks of the world getting more and more involved in trying to dictate market flows, it was pretty obvious they were going to have some period of success um, just because of what they were doing and how they were doing it and, and this ocean of liquidity. And inflation was always going to be the, the force that kind of brought them back to earth mm. with a thump because mm. as soon as inflation came back, and we've, you know, we've known this for a long mm. time, mm. Um, it would give them a series of unpalatable choices. They were going to have to pick the least painful one. But we never, we never got that inflation. And now it's here. Uh, you know, it's not there in Japan yet. And so for the first time in decades now, Japanese investors are probably watching what happens in in Europe and the US right, for yeah. clues rather than it being mm. the other way around. And, and again, mm. that may be some of the reason why there's been this lack of urgency to repatriate money back to Japan, given what's happening. Um, but inflation changes everything. You know, I, I, I keep talking about this. It's we've had we've essentially had no inflation for 40 years. Mm. Um, it's been declining since, um, you know, the, the early 80s. And it's been pretty much a one-way street. We've had a couple of little outbreaks of inflation, but you know, nowhere near where we're at now. Um, and that you can feel the mindset of people changing around inflation. You can feel those expectations becoming more entrenched. And that's a problem. It's, it was always mm. going to be a problem for central banks, and it's proving to be a big problem for central banks. And the, the next move that they make is going to be incredibly important. You know, do, do they stick to their word uh, and try and hike rates dramatically to choke this thing off, which is their mandate, let's face it. That's, that's, that's the raison d'etre of them being in their role is to, is to produce stable prices. Um, because if they do that, they have to renege on the central bank put that's been in place for 20 years. That's it's right. it's yeah. purely simple. And you can see that they've become so used to pushing markets around simply by what they're promising to do and markets believing them um, and so there's this doubt now. For the first time, we're mm. seeing this doubt, mm. in, and, and, mm. and the market is not just moving because a Fed governor has said something at a lunch. The market's not moving back into line. They're saying, "Okay, show us. You know, show us that you're you're going to tighten rates because we don't believe you will, and we don't think you can." So you know, the 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 power is shifting away from central banks back towards markets. I think, and ultimately in a fair fight markets will always win that fight they're just too big and too powerful 
yeah. for central banks to, to have the kind of control over them they've had for the last 20 years. It's just a moment in time. Mm. I was going to add as, as well, I mean, to some degree, I, I, I understand in terms of managing that inflation is going to be you know, one mechanism, which is the obvious mechanism in terms of raising interest rates. But I guess when I've looked at the states, and again, I, I'm far from having any knowledge of what goes on in the states here, Grant, but when I start to look at the, the housing start data, when I start to look at the 30-year mortgage data that's coming out, when I start to see this, I'm also sort of thinking to myself, well, look, you know, the central bank's can only raise those level of interest rates to a certain level. They can't sort of put the squeeze on too, too much. Otherwise you're gonna have social unrest. You're gonna have basically the fall of the pack of cards. I mean, that's- Well, it's interesting you say it, you put it that way, Brian, because um, the one thing you can guarantee, mm. and you don't need to look at the US and Europe for this just yet, but look in Peru and look at Sri Lanka, yeah. is if you don't choke this inflation off, you will get social unrest. If people can't feed themselves and can't put petrol in their cars to drive to work, yeah. that's when the problems start. You know, the, the, the social unrest is not stock market related. You know, you're not going to get social unrest if the stock market falls. Um, it's, it's not housing related. We didn't get stock market. Well, we didn't get social unrest when the housing bust happened. Mm. It's, it's basic needs that drive social unrest. And, and so we're seeing that in, Peru, we're seeing it in Sri Lanka now, and that is all around inflation. And that's why this is such a tricky place for these guys to be, is that to avoid that social unrest, and let's face it, to do their job, yeah. they yeah. have to get inflation down. And that will mean sacrificing asset prices, mm. as it should. You know, yeah. Let's face it, if anybody realistic looks at the gains they've made on their assets over the last 20 years, and we're told, you know, you've got to give 30% of that back. In the cold light of day, you go, yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've received way too much compensation. Frankly, I should never have made this much money. Of course, mm. that's not going to happen. But in the calculus that the central bank's going to have to make, it's about if we don't choke off inflation, we will get political upheaval. We will get social upheaval. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a guarantee. Mm. But... Yeah. Um, so that's the choice they have to make, right? Yeah. But but the the difficult one is how do we how do we gently bring asset prices down 20, 25% and avoid chaos in the stock market and avoid chaos in the bond market? Um, and I don't know that there's a way to do that without <laughs> getting financially repressive. And and again, that opens a whole other can of worms. But it, it, we're 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 at the point now where all of this stuff is going to start to matter, I think. As I say, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, it's interesting in terms of where the, the stock markets are trading right now, you know, like whether, whether we had the NASDAQ sort of, I think we ticked up yesterday and then we go down, we're going up. We go. So this sort of period of volatility to some degrees is really that sort of uncertainty really that the market's expressing in terms of that direction. Well, it's, I think it's also... Um... It's also the kind of flows you're seeing where, you know, this buy the dip mentality has been, mm. has, has, has grown very, very strong in people and, and with good reason, right? It's been reinforced at every turn for a long, long time now. And so I think you're seeing institutional money move out of equities. 
you're seeing hedge funds get to positions that are more favorable if the market should fall. Yeah. But you're still seeing a lot of money going into passive. You're still seeing a lot mm -hmm. of retail flows. Um, and of course, you know, that, that, that takes a bear market to, to erase. I mean, we all remember what happened after the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. Retail was absent from the market for probably 15 years in, in any meaningful size. Um, so we're still kind of in that, in that period where, when, when the current starts to shift in the other direction, you know, you, you always pay attention to the bond market and the bond market is sending a very clear signal and the equity market is not listening, but it never does. It never does because, um, the, 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 the investors in the equity market are by its very nature, a lot more unsophisticated than, mm. than fixed income investors. It's just, mm. it's no, no slight on equity investors, but you don't need to be a genius to do in the equity market, right? You need to have a much broader understanding of many more things to invest in the bond market. Um, and the bond market is screaming loud and clear, look out below. Yeah. And the equity markets yeah. haven't listened. You know, the equity markets are still within 10% of their all-time highs. That's right. Which yeah. I suspect <clears throat> is the incorrect place for them to be. But, mm. but, but time will tell. Either the bond market turns around, which given everything we've talked about up until now, looks extremely unlikely. Yeah. Or the equity market is going to fall, perhaps quite dramatically. Um, and we wait to see which way that resolves itself. No, it's interesting, Grant. And I was going to ask you as well, obviously, that uh, you've had some wonderful opportunities to go and talk to many, many different people sort of over the past couple of years to where you are now as well. Is there, we've covered a lot of ground on the call today anyhow, but I'm just curious, is there any other sort of like points, whether they, they don't have to be major right now, that's starting to kind of be discussed in your circles about, you know, the what if but type of happens that's that we haven't sort of touched on at the moment. Uh, yeah, look, the 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 um, the stress on the Eurozone and the Euro is starting to come back into discussions again, you know, it, those discussions about can it survive were kind of put to bed by Draghi's whatever it takes speech back in 2012. Um, they're starting to, to be looked at. Um, gold is starting to be looked at um, again, uh, you know, meaningfully rather than just the usual suspects uh, are talking about it. Um, but I think perhaps the, the biggest talking point is this move by the West to sanction the Russian central bank. You know, that to me, that's a big um, it really does change everything, you know, at, at a stroke to render a sovereign nation's reserves worthless is, is such a dramatic move. Mm. Um, and look, if, if it was carefully thought out and designed to send a message, it's definitely sent a message. But I suggest that the message it sent is being interpreted very differently to how it was meant, you know. Um, and I've spoken about this in, in a bunch of different places. But, you know, if you, if you are a central bank with dollar reserves right now, um, you have been taught in, in one swift move that those reserves are absolutely at the whim of mm. the US. And mm. if they decide that you're a bad actor, um, then those reserves are worthless and, and you can be shut out of, of markets. And so, you know, to, to at this point, to not be thinking about how you diversify away from the dollar, not completely, but you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. And if you hold 
the majority of your reserves in US dollars, then frankly, it's absolutely beholden upon you to start thinking about, well, maybe we trim that by 20%. That's right. And we and we look at gold or we look at, no one's gonna look at the yen right now, the euro is a tough one, but do we, do we stockpile commodities? You know, we, we're moving into a world mm. where commodity flows are being impacted and people are refusing to export commodities. And we've seen what that's done to fertilizer prices and food prices. And so the world is a very, very different place now than it was prior to Putin going across that border. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that Putin has changed the way the world's going. I think it's just an accelerant because this is, this is where we've been going. Um, but that, that, that subject, um, the idea that, that central bank reserves are sanctionable, uh, really upends to me it upends the us as a, as a kind of benign actor on the world stage it's there for everybody's good um it it says and again i've spoken about this but if you're if you're mbs in saudi uh you know you look at the reaction to the Khashoggi incident yeah. and you think well if something like that happened again the precedent's been set here mm. and i don't want to take that chance i don't want to hold so many dollars i want to diversify if, if i own gold and it's stored at the bank of england um or it's stored uh, at the federal reserve bank in new york you know what i might want that home in yeah. my own central yeah. bank in a vault on my own soil why wouldn't you i mean it's it's the only reason to have it there is liquidity and, and even then you don't need it all there mm. and we've seen that quietly happening you know the germans did this a decade ago but the french have announced recently that they've repatriated all their gold the aussies are sending someone to London to audit their gold. And I suspect that would be the first step to bringing that home to Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and so countries, I think, all around the world realize that this is not the same world we've lived in for the last 20 years, post-China's entry into the WTO, when this globalization trend really started in earnest. The world's a very different place now. And if the world's a very different place, then we as investors have to prepare for very different outcomes um, no doubt. And there, there, are, there are a series of, of very different situations that we need to evaluate. And if you're a central bank, this, the age of cooperation, the age of, you know, 12 banks, one policy changes to every man for himself. And that, given the structure of the kind of debt pile face in the world, is Let's just call it problematic yeah, without being yeah. too dramatic about yeah, it. Yeah. No, very true. But what, again, if you don't mind me asking, Grant, and maybe this is down to my own ignorance, if you've got central banks that are very concerned about being a deemed bad actor at some stage, and they start to reduce their holdings in government bonds, US government bonds, what does that mean for the US dollar then? Well, look, and this is the big question, right? I mean, and it's, not, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these central banks are thinking, oh, we're bad actors. They're thinking, what if, what, what if- Fair enough though. What if the US gets into a conflict with Russia and we decide to remain neutral? We don't want to get dragged into a war. Yep. Does that potentially make us bad actors? You know, we saw hmm. the amount of public outrage there was in the US when France refused to join that the coalition. Um, so it's not a question of we're bad actors. It's just, okay, this is too big a risk to take to have our foreign exchange reserves, to have the wealth of our country 
at the whim of someone else. It's just it's just a foolish risk yeah. in a in a non-united world, and that's where we are now. So, what it means for the dollar, um, if if you play it to its end, it means the end of the U.S. dollar-centric um, hegemony. That's what it means at the end. But mm-hmm. there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of people talking about this. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, people will say, well, there's no alternative to the dollar. And they're right. There is no alternative to the dollar. But that doesn't mean you have to hold all your assets in the dollar. And so I think you're going to see people shift away and just reduce their allocation to the mm-hmm. dollar. And the problem is that's all it takes. If you just reduce the demand for dollars by 10%, yeah. right, then that still has to be funded somewhere domestically. If there aren't the buyers for those dollars, given the state of finances of the United States, well, guess who's going to have to pick up those, you know, the, the slack? It's going to be the Fed. Hmm. So um, I, for me personally, even though you could see a, a spike in the dollar in the short term, I think that the spike won't perhaps be as dramatic as people think because there will be central banks looking to sell into that. And again, not to get rid of all their dollars, but if I've got 50% of my reserves in dollars, I might want to take that down to 20% over the next yeah. five years. Who knows? Yeah. But I'm, I'm certainly not, after the last six weeks, I'm not as confident to have so much of my wealth in dollars. And look, you can, you can have all the back-channel conversations you want with the, the, the US, and you can be reassured that, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry, you're fine. But is that enough? Is that a sensible risk to take? I would argue, no way is it, particularly as you've got Fed and Treasury, and you've got the, the, the Treasury making these decisions, not the Federal Reserve, hmm. and you've got a highly politicized environment, um, and all kinds of kind of wild cars on the left and right looking to get elected domestically. And in periods like this, you know the the domestic always trumps the international, and if you can if you can find a way to rally your citizens around a cause, it generally involves pointing your finger overseas at the bad guys. Yeah. So it, it's a very dangerous situation to be in to trust in the goodwill of other nations right now because they're all battling their own problems and they all will have to put their own citizens first. What does this actually mean for? You know, Joe Public, for example, I mean, some of this stuff is probably too high above Joe Public to think about this, right? Or- yeah, way too high, way too high. But that, that's why inflation is so pernicious and so is, important. Yeah, and and again, I've, I've talked about this more times than I care to remember, but this, the reason gas, gas is, so, is so important is gas prices and why people make such a fuss about it is that you're reminded of that increase every half a mile and you drive in your car every day. Right? It's right there in neon signs reminding you how expensive things are getting. So the public don't need to understand all the high-level stuff, and, and they're never going to because why should they? Why should they put the time into understanding it? But they understand when the cost of things they need to live their mm-hmm. lives go up 50%. Yeah. You know, I, I was in Australia for seven weeks at the beginning of the year, and um, in that time, petrol went from $1.55 a litre to 220 a litre. Um, yeah. That matters. That matters to people. Uh, and y- there's no hiding that. You can't, you can't put a guy in a suit behind a podium and explain to the public, well, don't worry, 
this is transitory. Because if you're talking transitory to Joe public who, who don't understand the higher levels, transitory means great. So you're telling me gas is going to come back down to $1.55 tomorrow. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, and patience runs pretty thin when you can't feed your family or heat your home. So I'm just trying to see if we can finish off with a lighter note, actually, Grant. <laughs> well, don't talk about Orient. That would be my advice to you. We can, we can talk about Fulham's return talk to the about Premier Fulham. League. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we can do that. No, no I, I can't thank you enough for, again, sort of just taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, just have a chat, Grant. I mean, it's... Uh, to use the word a fascinating discussion, I want to put that into context because there's a lot to absorb here. And, you know, I've, um, I've learned a lot. And quite frankly, you know, it's, it's given me some thought process in terms of how I think about things sort of going forward. And, you know, as I say, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, Brian, you're more than welcome. Sorry, it's taken so many attempts no, no, to get no. set up, but I'm, I'm delighted we managed to get it done. There. Thanks for having Listen, me. And I was going to say for, for anybody that does want to get in contact with you, it's Grant Williams Google. It's very simple. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's easy. I'm on Twitter at TTMYGH, which is the acronym for things that make you go home. And uh, the website is grant williams.com, and everything you need to know is there, and probably stuff you don't need to know. <laughs> well, Grant, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks, Brian.